0: So, Revelation chapter 8, and I want to start here because in the book of Revelation, we got to back up just a little bit and get a running start into this section that we're going to in chapter 11. In the book of Revelation, we're calling it the vindication of the Lord and His people because the Lord vindicates Himself and His people in this book. He shows them to be in the right, and He rewards them accordingly by bringing a series of divine judgments on the earth by which the wicked are judged and the righteous are rescued. They're rescued either because God allows them to escape the effects of this judgment or in some cases because he chooses to bring them home to himself in victory. And the main series of judgments in the book of Revelation actually occur in chapters 8 and 9 that we've already looked at where seven angels, remember are given seven trumpets. And as each angel blows his trumpet, these terrible cataclysmic judgments come upon the earth. The first four judgments are focused on the earth itself in chapter 8. And as we saw when we studied this chapter, it's like the Lord systematically destroying His creation, the creation week in reverse, days 1 through 5, making the earth virtually uninhabitable. But after these Four Judgments, if you look at verse 13 of Revelation 8, he says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Woe is a cry of dread, a cry of alarm, a cry of anguish. And the eagle cries, Woe, woe, woe here. Because the judgments that are about to come upon the earth will fill the earth with unspeakable despair and terror and death. So the last three trumpet blasts are also the three woes. The first woe, is at the beginning of chapter 9. So if you flip over to chapter 9, when the fifth trumpet blows to bring the first woe upon the earth, unbelievers are tormented by these demon locusts for up to five months. And it says the pain and sickness is so severe that they cry out for death, but death will not come to them. And that brings us to the end of verse 11. And then in verse 12, notice it says, the first woe has passed, Behold, two woes are still to come. So in verse 13, the second woe begins. The sixth trumpet blows to bring the second woe upon the earth and about two billion of those who were tormented in the previous judgment finally get their wish to die. They are slaughtered by the demon horsemen riding these hideous horses. And we finish this judgment. We are expecting now to see the third woe, to hear something like this. The second woe has passed, and now the third woe is coming. But after the, seventh, uh, after the sixth angel blows uh, his trumpet, we don't see those words. We don't see the seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet. Because when we reach the end of chapter 9, there's a pause in the action. And in chapter 10, verses 6 through 7, it opens this interlude in which this mighty angel comes down from heaven to announce the blowing of the final trumpet, And the angel swears in verses 6 and 7, there will be no more delay. But in the last days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Because as soon as that seventh angel blows the seventh trumpet, signaling the third woe, all that God has promised in the scripture regarding the coming king and the kingdom happens in a very short space of time. Seven more judgments called the Bowl judgments that we'll look at later will come upon the earth in rapid succession. Judgments so severe that if God would have let them continue, no one on earth would be left alive. And at the climax of these judgments being poured out, the Lord appears in the sky, followed by all his saints to make war on anyone who is still in rebellion against his reign, and he will release judgment upon his enemies and establish his kingdom and begin to reign in righteousness upon the earth. So chapter 10 says, no more delay. Finally, all of these prophets have declared in ages past, what we read about in the the Old Testament, all of the church has hoped for, all that God has promised to his chosen people. It's all about to happen. And so we turn to chapter 11 with this anticipation and we still don't find the seventh trumpet blowing, bringing the third woe. Instead, we find that the Lord has raised up special witnesses to minister to his chosen people, the Jews, during these last days in order to call them to repentance one more time, because this time the judgment is coming and the kingdom is coming very soon. And they need to repent and turn to their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for them and prepare themselves for his coming. And after that, and we finished with all of that scripture, finally, after the story of the two witnesses, we find these words in chapter 11, verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And as soon as this statement is made, John describes finally the seventh trumpet blast and the return of the Lord to establish his kingdom. And this is what he says. This is the moment we've all been waiting for in the book of Revelation, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, we met them in chapters 4 and 5. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces. And worship God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to raise up a kingdom through His people, through which the earth would be blessed. This is the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, who died to save both Jews and Gentiles, conquering his enemies and taking his rightful place on David's throne and ruling over the world. Now, why is this called the third woe? Because of the seven... Terrible bowl judgments that I mentioned a few moments ago that are going to be poured out upon the earth right before Jesus breaks through the clouds and comes on the white horse and overthrows his enemies. Those judgments are not described here in chapter 11, but they're going to be described in chapter 16 where seven angels pour out these seven bowls of wrath. What we'll see when we get to chapter 17 is that bowl one is a pouring out of painful sores on all those who worship the beasts, both. Uh, the beast. Bowls 2 and 3, all the water on the earth is turned to blood. All of the sea life dies. In Bowl 4, the sun scorches people with incredible heat. In Bowl 5, utter darkness descends upon the earth. In Bowl 6, powerful demons persuade people to gather an army against the Lord who is coming. Of all things, they think they can conquer him. And they're going to gather together. That's Bowl 6. That's Turn, that's poured out upon the earth and finally in bold judgment seven this is what it says the last judgment in chapter 16 it's described by these words now watch these words really carefully he says here this is this is this is way in, in chapter 16 we're not going to get there yet but he says there were flashes of lightning rumblings Peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And then it describes the damage of that earthquake. I'm skipping that verse to go to verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. You see that? Look then at Revelation 11 verse 19 again the description that's stated here is, is almost word for word of a summary of what you see here in chapter 16. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy he- hail. So there are a lot more judgments that are going to take place when the Lord returns than are, that are mentioned here in chapter 11. John mentions just a summary of the final judgment, but it really stands for all the judgments. All of them take place at the last blast of the trumpet. That's why this is the third woe. So after these terrible, inescapable, tormenting plagues that threaten to end life everywhere on the earth, amid the lightning and the thunder and the hail and the earthquake that literally rocks the globe, Jesus Christ returns. And we'll read about that return in chapter 19, where it says he comes to make war. And all the armies that have been gathered together by the demons against him are utterly destroyed, very quickly. And it says the birds will gorge themselves on their flesh and the beast and the false prophet will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. And in chapter 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years while those who are faithful to Christ, even dying for his sake, will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So that's what's going down. With this announcement in chapter 11. So why does the text appear here in chapter 11? Rather than right before the description of Jesus' coming in chapter 19. If I had written Revelation, you know, I might have reorganized it a little bit. You know, to make it all more chronological. But God has a reason He wants us to see it this way. Very simply, this passage is the announcement of Jesus' coming. This is His coming put into motion. And what we're going to see in the next several chapters leading up to the description of his coming will give us the significance of that coming and the events on the earth surrounding his coming so that we can appreciate fully everything that is going on on the earth at this time and everything the Lord's coming means. But all that is associated with his coming is happening now that this last trumpet has sounded and Jesus will reign. Where'er the sun does its successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moons shall wax and wane no more. Now, that's sort of an introduction to what is going on here in these, uh, these verses at the end of chapter 11. What I, I want to do now is help us to unpack the significance of this announcement for us this morning. And I'm, I'm going to take this morning and next Lord's day to look at this passage. And to do this, to set this up, I would like you to invite you to turn from the last book of the New Testament to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. I'm very sure of the chapter this time, all right? Matthew chapter 6, the Lord taught people to pray using this prayer that we find in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. By the way, I'm beginning, uh, I, I did a couple of weeks ago, began a series on, on the Sermon on the Mount for a little while on Wednesday evenings, just for a few minutes before we go to our prayer time. And there's a significant connection, as you'll see this coming Wednesday night, between what I'm saying in that series and what we're reading about in Revelation. So there's, there's a lot of method to this. But in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13... We traditionally refer to this prayer as the Lord's Prayer. And most of you have this prayer memorized, I dare say. But I want you to consider this prayer in the context of salvation history, what God is doing to rescue His people in time. Keep in mind, Jesus is talking to His own people. He's talking to the Jews in particular. They're taught to look for the Messiah and to long for the kingdom. For the, for, the, for the world to be overthrown, the Romans who were dominating them, and so that the kingdom would come and the Messiah would reign. They grew up being taught this was going to happen, and they're looking for it, and they're longing for it. And in verse 9 of chapter 6, Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May it be considered holy and greatly honored. And then Jesus says these familiar words, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right in the Lord's prayer is a prayer for the kingdom to come. The kingdom in which Jesus will reign as king. And when he comes to reign, his will is going to be carried out just as freely on the earth as it is in heaven. So, When is the last time you prayed these words of the Father? May your kingdom come so that your will may be accomplished on earth the same as it is accomplished in heaven. Do you pray this Jewish prayer? Can we pray this Jewish prayer? Should we pray this Jewish prayer? And I say to you this morning that not only can we pray this Jewish prayer for the coming of the kingdom, we ought to be praying this prayer on a daily basis. Because we ought to long for the kingdom to come, to God for God to finish his plan of salvation for this earth. Longing for something, being eager for something is, is something we all know about. We all know how to long. We know what it means to long for the end of a challenging or difficult time, like the end of a school semester or the end of an illness. We know what it means to long for or yearn for the beginning of a wonderful time, to long for your wedding day or graduation or for Christmas to come. Remember as a kid, just not being able to sleep at night because Christmas was the next day? That's a human experience. Loved, Loved ones visiting, longing for that trip, You're literally counting down the days. You're so excited. And you want all of the time to rush by to get to that point so that you could stop and stay at that point as long as possible. But why is it that we spend so much time yearning for temporal events yet we do not spend half as much time eagerly desiring eternal events that the Lord promises are indeed coming? And part of the answer may simply be that we do not comprehend the wonderful significance of these eternal events. That we are perhaps so enamored and holding so tightly to what we have here, it's hard for us to appreciate what is to come. But the coming of the kingdom represents the climax of what the Lord is doing in the earth to move history toward the ultimate vindication of himself and his people. All of the earthly human events we long for that God blesses us with, as wonderful as many of them are, they will not last for eternity. They will never make us truly happy. And in fact, some of them will be marred by sin. But Jesus instructs us to pray for and yearn for God to bring his plan for his people to fulfillment in the returning to establish his kingdom. Why? Why is the return of the Lord to establish his kingdom such a big deal? There's a lot of reasons, but there's at least four of them that are found here in this text. I want to cover two of them this morning and two of them next week before we gather around the Lord's table. Why should we long For the kingdom. The first reason is this. The established kingdom is the visible fulfillment on this earth of God's promise. It's no longer simply in faith. We will see it. It's a visible fulfillment of the promise. Up till now, the visible, political, worldwide kingdom in which Jesus actually sits upon the throne of David, seems like a far-fetched idea to many people. In fact, not even professing believers agree, all of them, that Jesus is going to set up an actual earthly kingdom. There are theological positions that insist that the church must be that kingdom but because, of course, Jesus is coming and actually setting it up. That can't possibly happen. Yet God, through his prophets, specifically promised a kingdom with a righteous king who will rule as the offspring of David. The Old Testament describes the nature of this rule in detail and the event of this kingdom and the rule and the conditions that will exist on the earth during this rule. And we've taken time to look at several of these promises in this series already. We should be eager, joyful, at the prospect that God is going to fulfill his word just as he promised. Verse 15 says that when the angel blew his trumpet, there were loud voices in heaven, most likely the loud voices of the myriads of angels we read about in chapters 4 and 5, and other heavenly beings who are crying out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign Forever and ever. I want to call your attention to two features of this announcement. First, I want to call your attention to the words, the kingdom of the world has become, has become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of the world refers to all the people on the globe who are ruled over by various governments, various kings controlling their kingdoms. Now, I want to ask you a question. When, in all of human history, has the world not belonged to the Lord to do with whatever he wanted? I mean, really, has there ever been a moment when the Lord is not in complete control of this globe? Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, God says, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is mine. Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is the king of the empire that rules the globe, who has been humbled before the God of heaven." All the inhabitants of the earth, he says, are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. And yet, the heavenly chorus cries out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. This shows that there is a literal kingdom coming because there must be something fundamentally different between the rule of God over all creation now and the rule of God through the kingdom. And the difference is that the coming kingdom will be a visible, political, hands-on center of government with Christ on the throne and the forces of darkness banished from the earth. This is remarkably different than God's rule today. Today, satanic forces and monarchs and dictators and presidents and dynasties are allowed under God's control a measure of rulership underneath the governing hand of the creator. But when Jesus reigns, there will be no doubt in all the world who is in charge of the globe. He will actively rule through an immediate system of government. And the second feature I want to point out to you is this phrase, forever And ever. He shall reign forever and ever. Because it might have crossed your mind really quickly, so quickly you might have dismissed it. But have you ever thought about the fact why does it say the millennial kingdom is only a thousand years long, and yet it says that Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever? Well, in a way, we could technically say that the reign of Christ goes on forever and ever, because if you keep reading through Revelation, once the Lord Jesus begins to reign, His visible governing control of the world will remain forever. It extends to the new earth that is coming. After the millennial kingdom, there will be a new heaven and a new earth over which God and the Lamb will rule. But it's probably not what the expression is referring to here, actually. The expression forever and ever literally is translated to the ages of the ages. It doesn't necessarily refer to eternity. That would be dependent on the context. It literally means it goes on enduring until the time is supposed to end. It refers to the enduring nature of something that's lasting. So here the expression means that as long as the kingdom endures, Christ will always be its king. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes the reign of Christ this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, then comes the end. That's the end of the kingdom. Because it has a beginning point and an ending point on this earth that exists now. Then comes the end when he, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we'll see that in Revelation. Revelation 20 verse 14 says that death and hell itself are cast into hell the lake of fire. And then we see the new heaven and the new earth in chapters 21 and 22. It's all coming visibly, unmistakably, for all the world to see, both the living and the dead. And we should long for our faith to be made sight, long for what we believe is true, to come true. It's a test of our faith. If we really believe it, and even if we have a glimpse of the wonder of it, we long for it, just like we long for anything that enthuses us on this earth. But there's another reason that we should long for the kingdom to be established, and it's related to the first, so I'm going to move right into it. And that is the kingdom represents the will of Christ asserted on the earth. The will of Christ. He's reigning. And so his will is asserted on the earth. In verses 16 through 17, the 24 elders representing the Old and New Testament believers come off their thrones at the announcement of the Lord's reign and they fall on their faces and worship and they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And notice again that this particular expression of the Lord's rule over the earth has a beginning point. That's the kingdom. It has begun here. Through Christ, God will exercise His power over the earth and reign, which means that the will of Jesus Christ will govern the earth. Now think about that for just a second. The will of Christ, what He wants, will govern the earth. We don't always want what He wants, we have to admit. That's part of learning to, to walk with the Lord. But his will will be the law on the earth. At his first coming, Jesus merely called people to repent because his kingdom was coming. He didn't force them to obey. Many of his disciples walked back and walked no, went away and walked no longer with him, John's gospel says. But when he reigns over the earth, his perfect righteous desire will be law. He will take His great power and exercise it regally, politically. And we should long for this as saints of God because we should long for righteousness to flourish in the earth, for sin to be put down and for the rule of law to be that which honors the Creator who made the world. Wouldn't it be wonderful if righteousness began to flourish in the earth? That should rejoice our heart. And when we look around at our world, we should have this growing heaviness in us. The more we know Christ, because we see the sin in the world, the rampant immorality, the murdering and drunkenness, the arrogance of those who scoff at Christ, abortion, the oppression of the hu- of humanity the lack of justice in the world for those who are innocent and the exaltation of those who are in the wrong who want nothing but power as we were walking around chicago this week on the riverfront i was reminded of the amazing architecture and technology of that city it really is amazing these towering stone buildings or glass buildings with these intricate designs they're truly a technological and artistic triumph and then you begin to explore the wealth of the city and all the cuisine and all of the commerce and the arts the chicago symphony often named one of the best symphony orchestras in the country is there all everything's in chicago It was a cause to celebrate the fact that human beings are made in the image of God and we are created to imitate our creator, to invent, to design, to make things that are beautiful and majestic. We give glory to God that way. Unbelievers, unwittingly, without even knowing it, are giving glory to God through these magnificent works because they're created in His image. But walking around the city not only causes you to marvel at human genius, it also causes you to be stunned at human depravity. And we could see the poverty and the broken lives and the fear and the mistrust. There's a reason that we instinctively, when we're walking around a big city, are sort of looking over our shoulder every once in a while, and we're sort of on our guard. And if you're a young person walking through, you get warned by your parents by all kinds of things before you go. Why is that? Because there's fear in the world. And there are certain streets or alleys that we don't go down because of fear. Do you realize that when Jesus reigns as king and Satan is bound, that human genius will flourish and there will be no more fear? That the lion will dwell with the lamb? That what is right and holy and proper and good will flourish in the world? There's something else we couldn't help noticing when we walked through Chicago. Chicago. And it is the fact that it has been declared National Pride Month in the United States. The celebration of the LGBTQ community. Uh, The iconic rainbow-colored flags were flying everywhere. You could see advertisements that were specially made for Pride Month on every street and nearly every place of business. Homosexual couples walking hand-in-hand openly everywhere you look. The buildings at night were lit up in rainbow colors. Now, the origin of Pride Month, if I can make a couple comments about this, was a way to tell society, don't mistreat LGBTQ people, but show kindness to them even though they're different than you are. Because in the past, they were treated unfairly, they were bullied. This goes back to an event in New York City, some of you might know, that happened in June of 1969 when police raided an LGBTQ establishment called the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan because what was going on there was at that time against the law. And the LGBTQ community rioted and fought back against the government, and they won. And now, over 50 years later, we have had three Democratic presidents who every year have declared June as the National Pride Month. It started with Bill Clinton in 1999, who declared June to be Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. President Obama restarted the tradition, and now more recently, President Biden has followed suit. President Trump did not make an official proclamation, but after two years in office under pressure, probably he tweeted, as we all know, uh, something about uh, the month. Now... Shouldn't we be loving and kind to people anyway, no matter what their sin? Of course we should. That's what Christ would have done while telling the truth. And as Christians, we shouldn't need a special event or an emphasis month to remind us about that. We are merely sinners saved by grace after all, commissioned by Christ to share the gospel with other sinners. We're not here to attack anyone or to bully them or berate them. And that's never how we should present the gospel. But we have to look at things honestly. Pride Month is about more than just being kind to people, it is a celebration of immorality. It is not gay protection month. It's gay pride month. And it's an example of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 19 about those whose end is destruction, who glory in things that ought to be ashamed to them. It's boasting in evil. In fact, some of you have seen pictures of a pride parade. I would never put one up in the screen on a Sunday morning. But that kind of parade is just a boasting in evil. In fact, it's not just a boasting in evil, it's a reveling in it. It's an in your face exaltation of what God will one day judge. And we are not in the position of authority to adjust what God says is right and good and holy just because the culture changes and doesn't like it anymore. And we read Paul's explanation in Romans 1 of the degradation of a fallen culture in which the reversal of God's created order, including homosexuality and lesbianism, is one of the sure signs that a culture has completely rejected God, that they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Paul finishes this chapter with these words, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's the pressure of our day. Not just to say, okay, you live your life your way and I'll live it my way, but we have to approve of that life. That's what we're being told to do. And sadly, I think this verse is now an indictment on modern American culture. Much of it, not all of it yet, but much of it. And if you say anything, if you say what I'm saying now, you are beat down, you're canceled in this culture. You're laughed at, you're labeled as a bigot, a homophobe, all of the rest. Pride Month is one of the ways that our country is living out what Isaiah warns about in Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. But if we really loved LGBTQ people, or any other people who are lost in darkness, we should be saying, we care about you, but you need to repent of your sin and turn to Christ because judgment is coming, not just on them, but anybody who has not embraced Jesus Christ. We don't have the authority to change God's standard. We have to call people to God's standard through faith in Jesus Christ. And we need to remember this. We have to remember it because it is very easy for us surrounded as we are not only by wickedness, but also by the approval of wickedness and the hatred of anyone who dissents, it's very easy for us to look the other way, to kind of get used to it, to be so enamored with the world that we grow numb to the evil that is in the world. And when we grow numb to the evil that is in the world, it decreases our sense of urgency to rescue people from the world. We need to look at the world the way Paul did. Remember how Paul reacted to the world in Acts chapter 17 when he came to Athens? If you're familiar with this story, Paul comes to Athens, and I mean, Athens was considered the highest center of Greek learning ever. I mean, if you recognize the names Socrates and Plato, Epicurus and Zeno, Demosthenes, the famous orator, Euripides, the famous playwright, they all hailed from Athens. They were Athens people. Even Aristotle, he wasn't born in Athens, but he adopted the city later on as his home. It was the place to be if you were a genius. The city had flourished with amazing monuments and dozens of famous temples and gold, in the golden age of Pericles. I mean, it was the, literally the crown jewel of the ancient world when it came to all things cultural and brilliant. So even in Paul's day, to come to Athens was like to come to a tourist attraction. If they had had a gift shop in Athens, they probably would have sold a T-shirt that said, I wasn't born in Athens, but I got here as quick as I could. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Now, Paul also, remember he had sent Silas and Timothy back to check in the churches in Macedonia? So he had time in Athens to kick around, to take in the sights. But Paul was not agog with the attractions of the city. Instead, he was deeply moved to sorrow and anger over the worship of idols, because the great temples to Apollo are there, and Ares and Hermes and the altar of the twelve gods, an altar honoring Zeus and Hera and Poseidon and Demetrius and Apollo and Artemis and Hephaestus, Hephaestus I guess, Athena, uh, Ares. I, I feel like Andrew trying to read Second Samuel uh, this morning. Uh, uh, Aphrodite, Hermes, Dionysius. This altar to the 12 gods was a monument to the Athenian religions. They would actually mark distance from this monument in Athens. For example, if you were 20 kilometers from the city of Athens, the distance would be according to that particular temple. And there was much more. An altar to Zeus, a massive temple to Olympia, Zeus... Which was not even completed in Paul's day. And looking up to the Acropolis, the high point of the city, which you can see here on the slide, he could see this massive temple called the, the, the Parthenon. And to this day, that's the, the symbol of Athens. And near the Parthenon, the temple to Athena Nike. And Paul had come to the zenith of culture and learning and religion. And, and if, if he was like, you are me, when we go to some of these places, and I felt this way a little bit in Chicago, I have to admit, we were like, wow, look at all this. And you start exploring and look at all, all, all the things that people have invented. But Luke tells us very clearly in Acts 17, 16, that Paul was far from impressed. It says, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols. The word provoked, by the way, does not mean that Paul was just simply stirred up about it. It, It's a really intense word. It means that Paul was angry. He was seething. He was exasperated with indignation. I don't know if you ever get that way about things, This, this terrible moroseness that just settles down within your spirit when you can't stand something anymore and you have to do something about it. Well, imagine the apostle Paul. All of his life, he grows up with the Shema, From Deuteronomy 6, ringing in his ear, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So seeing all of the idols being glorified by these pagan Gentiles and Paul now being a follower of Jesus Christ shakes in his spirit down to his earliest memories, his earliest theology, and he has to do something about it. And so it says he began to reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace, the public square, every day with those who happened to be there. And it was because of that, eventually, they they kept hearing this guy over and over again. They were really curious, and they dragged him up to the Aragopolis to check him out, because that's where they would check out the new philosophies. And the story goes on. Now, we live in a world that is far more advanced in many ways than the ancient city of Athens. Our technology and our commerce today would boggle their minds. It boggles our minds. And having a country like this, we can take our fill of it. We can buy the gadgets and use the technology and fill our time with amusements and enjoyable pursuits and personal goals of accomplishments and prosperity. But we are also in danger of being blind to the world as God sees it. As a gaping wound filled with people who have rejected God, who are merely waiting for destruction. That's what Ephesians 2, right, calls them the sons of wrath, the children of wrath, waiting for destruction. And we need to open our eyes and see the world as God sees it, and we need to pray. Pray for our country and pray for our community that God will be gracious and bring people out of this culture to himself. If we are not horrified over the brokenness that is in the world, in fact, if we're rather sort of enjoying our time here only making all our plans based on thriving in it, then it would be very natural for us to not be able to long for the kingdom, to long for Christ to finish his plan. May your kingdom come, Lord, but not today. Yeah, there's a lot of things I want to do first. And if we allow ourselves to become deadened to sin in the world, we will lose our anxiety to reach the world before it's too late. So if we can learn to pray, may your kingdom come and really mean it and really desire it, then it ought to have an impact on how we look at the world and the decisions we make in the world and how we talk to people in the world and how we fill our time in the world. There's nothing we can do to make the kingdom come any faster. All we can do, Jesus says, is long for it and pray for it. But those who desire to see righteousness flourish in the world... Have a desire to see that righteousness flourish now. I think it begins right here in our own lives. What are we doing in our life personally to promote that which is right, that which God wants, that which honors Christ, the coming King, beginning with the gospel? What are we doing in our families to promote righteousness? What are we doing in our relationships, in our conversations in the community? even in who we support politically and what laws we help establish as a democracy. It plays into that as well. Do we communicate clearly and effectively the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death for our sins and his resurrection that rescues us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and one day by God's grace will rescue us from the very presence of sin? Do we long for that? This is how we live when we learn for the, yearn for the righteous rule of Christ over the earth. And I hope that's an encouragement to us. When we think about what's going on in Revelation, it's not just a dusty report of what's going to happen someday in the future, and it's probably not going to happen right away so we can put it out of our minds. No, Jesus wants to, uh, us to process our world with the soon coming in mind. And the next Lord's Day, we'll discover two more reasons that we should yearn for the righteous rule of Christ. But in the meantime, let's ask the Lord to work within us that we might have a real view of the world and our place in it, renewing our commitment to pray as Jesus taught, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May righteousness reign unhindered. And may we be part of that process as we are awaiting for the Lord to return. Father, thank you.